Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Jonathan Fields is the founder of media and education venture Good Life Project, where he serves as the executive producer and host of one of the top-ranked podcasts in the world with a large global mission-driven community that has been hailed by the Wall Street Journal as one of the top self-development podcasts and featured on stage during Apple's legendary annual event. Jonathan is also the chief architect behind Sparkotypes, a set of work imprints, tools, and programs tapped to nearly 250,000 individuals and organizations in the quest to amplify purpose, engagement, and performance. He is the author of the bestseller, How to Live a Good Life, as well as the critically acclaimed book, Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. Jonathan's career has spanned many fields and disciplines. Determined and focused, Jonathan has been able to live his life with intention and a strong sense of purpose after finding meaning in a time of crisis. Jonathan, welcome to the One Away Show. Oh, thanks for inviting me here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really uh, proud of you and uh, excited for you with the uh, launch of your latest book, which we'll, we'll dive into. Uh, but uh, ha- happy to have you on the One Away Show today. What What's the one away moment that you want to share with us today, Jonathan? Yeah, you know, for me, there, there are a number, but the one I've been reflecting on a lot recently, and I think for two reasons. One is because we're just past the 20th anniversary of it. And two, because it was a catalyzing moment in my work and the way I thought about work and, and the relationship between work and life it would have been 9-11. Um, that, that for me changed a lot of things. Wow. Uh, well, I would love for you to explain, you know, where you were at 9-11. I know you lived in New York through a majority of your life. And I, uh, you know, where were you in 9-11 and why was that moment maybe so significant uh, for you? Yeah. So I grew up just outside of New York and I've lived my entire adult life um, up until uh, just about a year ago in New York City. So that would be 30 years. Um, And I was living in Hell's Kitchen at the time, which is a part of New York, which uh, in, in a past generation lived up to its name. But um, when I was there, it was getting a lot more gentrified. But um, you know, it was sort of like a part of the Midtown West Side of Manhattan. I was married. We had a new home and a three-month-old baby. And I had left a life as a big firm lawyer a couple of years before had stepped into the world of entrepreneurship and fitness and well-being and, and built a fitness facility and then sold it and then was taking a little bit of a breather thinking about my next step and i got really fascinated in the world of yoga um, i had started to develop my own practice and my entrepreneur's brain immediately when i'm interested in something it starts looking at the culture and and the history and the business model around uh, those particular things. And I was looking around, I was like, you know, there's an interesting opportunity here to bring something to the city that preserved the power um, and the traditions of the practice, but made it more accessible because I felt like 
for a lot of people, it just wasn't, uh, it was a little bit scary. And, and, and you got to remember, this is a very different time in the world of yoga too. So, um, so I started looking for a space and I found a space that was a floor in a building, 115 year old building in hell's kitchen. It was a full floor and it was just three blocks from where I lived. And I, I remember seeing the picture window and I ran home and I called the number and the the owner met me there and I walked up the steps and like the door swings open. And this is like a, a, a bombed out disaster inside. And I just looked at it and I was like, this is perfect for a yoga studio. <laughs> um, I, cause I kind of saw what it could be. I saw the potential and I knew there were more floors in the building um, that we could potentially expand to if we wanted to. And, and in fact, we ended up doing that. And, uh, and I came back, I brought my wife and we're like, yeah, like this actually looks really interesting. So I signed a six-year lease for that floor, a floor in a building in Hell's Kitchen, New York, um, you know, new home, married with a three-month-old baby. And the day I signed that lease was September 10th, 2001, the day before 9-11. And I woke up the next morning, as you can imagine, um, horrified, you know, this is my city. This was literally like, you know, this is my city. And these are this is my community and guaranteed, you know, I knew somebody who was in the towers. And in fact, I did, you know, mm. um, I knew a number of people and at least one of them um, didn't come home, you know, and he was one of the youngest partners in one of the firms that was on the top floor of one of the towers married. He had two young kids and, um, and, you know, my, my mind was going to him and was going to all the other families and just the utter devastation and the, the complete collapse of a worldview and a sense of safety and a sense of relationship and, and my place in the world. And then I, it went to, am I really going to launch a business into this sea of pain? Um, where I don't know if there's going to be an end to this. And remember then we didn't know if this was going to be the start of world war three, we didn't know what was happening then. And I found myself with my wife um, and our little baby in her car seat, driving up to the home of the, the dad who would eventually never come home. And we were kind of sitting vigil with his wife and a whole bunch of other people and just kind of waiting and watching the news and, and everybody, you know, slowly shuffled out as the day went on. And by the end of the day, it was just, um, uh, just sort of like us and my wife and, and little daughter, and then, um, our friend and her daughters and, and, um, and my wife and our friend went upstairs to put the, uh, infant to sleep. And they asked me if I would go upstairs and read a bedtime story to the two and a half year old. And so of course I did. And I walked up the stairs and I opened the, you know, the door and I see this little two and a half year old boy sitting in the bed with his favorite book on his lap, waiting for his daddy to come home and, and read to him as was, you know, the normal routine. And it was my job that night to, you know, play a horrible stand-in um, for mm. a dad, a father who would never come home. And we left that night, you know, really rattled. Um, and, and the conversation in the car home was, you know, really trying to understand what was going on around us, trying to understand what the future of our city was going to be trying to understand what our life might look like. And then of course, wondering whether like we should push forward and launch a company, you know, in, 
in this moment in time. Um, you know, pretty safe bet. If I had gone back to the building owners like that day and said, Hey, listen, we can't do this. We're shutting it down. Um, you know, we could have figured that out, but the fact that I, I knew that one person we knew never, he didn't go to work that morning, never expecting to come home that night. It was just a regular day for him and life happens and we have no promises, you know? Um, and it really struck home with me. I said, you know, we have one pass through and you got to take advantage of that. You've really got to, you got to lean into it as much as you can. And so we went ahead, you know, we profoundly changed all the plans. We were going to launch with all this fanfare, kind of like a health club and a pre-sale and celebrations and all sorts of kind of in your face advertising and a big marketing campaign. And of course, at that point it was, you know, completely inappropriate, but, um, but we built this space out and November 19th of that year, about eight weeks later, we launched into a community and were pretty packed from day one because people were wandering around the streets then just in a fog, in a complete and utter fog, not knowing what to do. And we were a place of community. We were a place of conversation. We were a place of inclusivity, a place of breath and movement. Um, people would just come and sit in a corner and cry. People would come and and move through and, and work their bodies to the point where they just were shaking and they couldn't stand anymore because they were exercising something they couldn't understand. And then they would just sit and, and be with each other. And it was a really powerful moment for me. We, we launched with two people, literally like, you know, me and somebody else who actually was very experienced and knew what she was doing as a teacher. And I was kind of making it up as I went, um, probably should not have been teaching in hindsight. It took a while and a lot of training to really figure out how to be, you know, good. But, um, you know, I, that was a moment where I just remember being there and it wasn't, we sent people down to the piers that were two Avenue blocks away from us, where a lot of the, the aid workers were being staged and just said, come, you know, don't pay, just come, breathe, move, meditate, do whatever you need to do. Um, and it taught me so much, you know, um, about the importance of doing something that matters with your life, about the fact that, you know, we're never given any promises about what the next moment will hold, let alone the next day, the next month, the next year. I think we've been reminded of that in some pretty profound ways over the last 18 months. And also, you know, it, it reminded me what can happen when you step into a place where you're aligning sort of like the thing that you're here to do. For me, I'm a maker. I build things with a, a deep, deep um, and pervasive need. And then you just show up and do your best to keep creating moments and experiences um, and possibilities to be of service. You know, um, there was so much that I learned in those days. You know, I learned to let go of plans. <laughs> you know, I, this was not my first business. Um, and I have opened, you know, I've launched a number of companies since then. And I always plan fiercely and have performance and spreadsheets and make assumptions and all of this stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, like it's important to do that. And then it's really important to hold them really lightly and respond to what, those you seek to serve are telling you they really need because you never get it entirely right. And often you get it pretty wrong. 
Um, and then try and find the sweet spot between what they want and need and the way that you need to show up in the world to feel like you are fully alive um, and invested and getting what you need from the experience. And so that moment, you know, it changed me in a lot of ways. And I've been reflecting on it a lot recently because like I said, you know, we're having this conversation on the eve of the 20th anniversary of that moment. Um, for, you know, I, I'm no longer in New York as of last year, which is a whole giant change for me. And reflecting on that, you know, 20 years later, as I sit nestled in, in a mountain town in Colorado, um, and also on the eve of a book that in no small part is the outgrowth of those initial curiosities around the relationship between work, meaning, purpose, joy, flow, and life. Um, it's all sort of like coming full circle right around this moment in time. Mm, absolutely. Uh, well, Jonathan, I just want to take the time to acknowledge the the depth of what you shared around your friend and the story you shared um, being the stand-in father and how hard that must have been uh, for you and uh, just to witness that, right? Where maybe everything you knew was just shaken to your core and, you know, maybe how yoga kind of in the opening up the studio was this, maybe what you didn't know at the time, this healing, this healing center for people who are so lost from this, uh, the, the catastrophe from the events to just bring people together in such a meaningful, joyful way. Um, so thank you so much for just uh, speaking to that experience so profoundly, something that I wanted to, it's something I believe is so interesting from what you were talking about is how just yoga as a practice, it's, it's so associated with, you know, healing and helping people come alive. Uh, and for you, it sounds like it gave you an opportunity to align who you were to what you do um, for sure. But was it, was yoga the first, you mentioned leaving the law firm, firm, was yoga the first time in your life when you were opening up the studio, when you saw it, one, meeting a need and making you alive? Was this your kind of your first foray into like true meaning and purpose or had you experienced that before? No, it definitely was not my first foray into it. Um, I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways um, and very privileged in ways that I'm have become far more aware of, um, as an adult. Um, I grew up in a water town just outside of New York city. And, um, my dad had one job his entire life. He was a research professor and ran a lab researching human cognition and loved what he did. And to this day actually still does research, even though he retired from academia, because he just, it's a thing he can't not do. You know, he does it even when he wakes up in the morning and he's not getting paid for it anymore. He just, loves it. My mom was an artisan and is to this day. And so I was always exposed to my mom, um, devoting herself to, to craft. Um, she was a potter when I was younger and, uh, the downstairs in our, um, the basement in our house where I grew up was her studio. And like, I can literally, if I close my eyes and I inhale, I can smell the clay dust, you know, that you would just sort of like get wafted through you every time you, you walk down the stairs. Um, and, you know, she was somebody who surrounded herself with people who were kind of like quirky, eccentric and artisans and craft people. Um, and, and, you know, very likely 
weren't the type of people that you're going to see in sort of like mainstream business. And they were the, the people that, you know, were part of our community, our familial community. And so I was exposed really early on to the notion that there's, there are things inside of us that just compel us to show up and invest effort for no other reason than the way it makes us feel. It makes us feel alive because there's a sense of meaning and joy and purpose. And we have this ability to lose ourselves and flow. I didn't have language for it yet mm. in my younger years. I just kind of like knew, I sensed, I sensed that this was going on. Um, and I was given the freedom to just pursue a lot of what I want to pursue. My parents didn't place a lot of the expectations on me that I know so many people have felt like they have to shape their lives around and rise to, even though it's really not in any meaningful way aligned with who they are in their essential selves. And I didn't, I didn't have those constraints. It was really a gift, you know? And I, and I, like I said, when you're a kid, you don't think about any of this stuff. You just wake up in the morning, you know, that you have a lot of opportunity to do what you love. And I realized in hindsight, how much of, how much of a blessing, how much privilege there was in that, you know, in a lot of my circumstance in my, like the way that the relationship I had with my family and the freedom they gave me to really just discover who I was. So I was also, I've been a maker from the time I, I can remember opening my eyes that, you know, building stuff with my hands, with physical materials, um, eventually learning to paint and painting album covers on jean jackets, just cause I loved doing it. And then I got pretty good at it. So I started making my walk around money in high school, doing that, you know, um, creating my own, yeah, uh, landscaping businesses in the summers. And then, uh, um, you know, working construction, uh, when I was in college and, uh, and during the year in college, I had, I've had a lifelong passion for music. Um, music takes me somewhere. I don't care whether it's Bach or country Joe and the fish or the pentangle or the grateful dead or, um, you know, like Kendrick Lamar, it's like good music is good music. And, um, so I started DJing in college and then, uh, with a friend built a mobile disc jockey sound and lighting company that we built up. And, um, and I loved doing that so much so that I never went to class and graduated with like a C plus, um, <laughs> average, um, how I got into law school after that, I have no idea, but so, so I've had a lifetime of experiences where I have been given the freedom to explore and to, to build and to take risks and to stumble and then to figure out how to get back up and, you know, to scrape my knees and to scrape my soul and, and know that it, it hurts and it sucks and I'll figure out a way through. And, you know, like I didn't have a ton of resources, but, you know, so it built in me just, uh, I think a lens on possibility mm. that has stayed with me to this day. And also I've realized later in life, like I keep reflecting on the fact that this was not the experience of a lot of other people that I know. And there are so many sliding doors that could have slid in a different direction that would have had me just living a much more constrained, confined expectation driven life where it, I think I probably still would have figured out a lot of these things about myself but um, it probably would have been way further down the road. So, so, you know, me being able to step into a place of doing the thing I feel like I'm compelled to do and loving it and vanishing into it and driving a sense of purpose and joy and meaning from it, 
it's been a through line, honestly, through pretty much my whole life. It's not always the thing I've gotten paid to do, but it's always been there for me. Absolutely. And it's so neat that uh, you grew up in an environment that promoted possibility and expansion uh, opposed to restriction, right? And I think you're right. It's not the norm. And having examples as parents who maybe lived that and well lived it in two different ways were examples for you to to follow or see early. Did and just to dive a little deeper, did your parents kind of intentionally or actively talk about being able to do work that they love and make things that they they loved, or was that just something you witnessed and then that just became more ingrained into your DNA? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no, they never talked about it. They just modeled it. They just did it, you know? And um, like, as we all know, cause you know, like I was a kid once, pretty sure you were a kid once. I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this was a kid once. It really doesn't matter what a parent says to you. You know, it's like, you just follow their behavior. And if they're saying one thing and modeling something else, then it reads as cognitive dissonance. And not only do you not believe them, but you don't believe like whatever, like you don't believe the model of what they're, they're living. Um, so for me, it was never, you know, we never had a sit down where it's like, Hey, you can do anything with your life. And, um, and the truth is also the, the town that I grew up in was a very wealthy town. So a lot of money in the town and we didn't have money. You know, we weren't on the poverty side of things, but we were also, we're just, you know, we were, we were not a family with a lot of money. So I saw that all around me and I saw what it bought you. Um, and I didn't necessarily see that it bought you happiness or fulfillment. It bought you cool stuff. And as a kid, yeah, that's pretty awesome. But, um, but beyond that, you know, I had the ability to just do a lot of things that I did. And, and it was really modeled behavior. You know, and it wasn't even intentional. My parents weren't sitting there having conversations saying, let's model like the behavior for the kids that we want them to adopt because like, mm. then hopefully it'll work. It's just, they did what they did. They mm. kind of really marched to their own drum beats as human beings. And they do to this day. And while that, you know, can read as quirky, um, eccentric, a little bit weird as a kid. And maybe sometimes you wish they wouldn't just like every kid wishes that about their parent at some point, you know, it also showed me something that I think, um, it gave me a permission that was never spoken, um, but always embodied. Totally. Well, it's, it's just neat the way you describe it. It's like you've really grown to appreciate um, that. And the fact that, you know, what's the quote? Like, so you speak with your actions. Like, they, they didn't have to sit you down and tell you or model. Uh, or they just, I mean, all they had to do is model it through behavior. And you were able to pick up on that uh, and appreciate that and grow to appreciate it. So, you know, we're growing with Jonathan, we're growing up like that. And then I'll get back to the yoga studio moment and everything that's followed thereafter for you in your career. But, uh, you know, with you maybe noticing early that the freedom to explore and be in flow and oh, a hard heart centered space where you get to create, right? What led you to working within the law firm? Uh, and, and what made you leave i i believe when we were sitting uh and talking about this the first time we we spoke there was a pretty big story here so i'm just like curious like what made you get into uh, this that work in the first place yeah so um so as i mentioned i basically didn't attend class as an undergrad student <laughs> um 
So much so that I had to beg my way into enough classes to have enough credits to graduate college. Um, I literally pled my way into a class called Earthquakes for one credit in the second semester of my senior year because I needed it to get out of school. Um, and and I, I had a great time and, um, and, I, and I was building a company. It was the first company that I actually ever sold when we graduated. And, um, but I also got really curious. I, I took some time off after that and uh, I took some of the, the money that uh, the equity from having sold the business and vanished into Australia for three months, diving down the East coast. And when I came back, was kicking around these sort of like outside sales jobs and realizing it really wasn't what I want to be doing. And I, and I thought I want to go back to school. So I ended up going to law school in no small part because I figured it would teach me to think and teach me to, to research and teach me to write and teach me to speak. Um, it did some of those things <laughs> for sure. Um, and I'm, and I'm really happy that it gave me a certain skill set. And, um, I ended up also going and I said, you know, I really want to see what I'm intellectually capable of when I say yes to this, because it was going to be three years of my life and, you know, like a lot of my savings. And um, so I went into it, I was all in and I worked really, really hard. And I graduated very close to the top of my class and had a lot of opportunity when I came out. And I ended up working in the SEC um, in New York, which was the enforcement division. So we investigated insider trading and financial markets. And I was the annoying, you know, like 22 year old where when you ask them what you did, you know, I would basically say, uh, I work for the SEC and I honestly can't tell you anything beyond that because it was all under the cover of secrecy. And, and it really was. Um, and, uh, and then I, I ended up in a, um, in a large firm, you know, and, and I was the whole time I realized, I, I just kept thinking, this is really not working for me, but I want to stick it out. So I switched sides and I went into a giant firm in Midtown, New York, very prestigious, fantastic salary and benefits and doing this super high stakes work. And a couple of weeks into that, I was on a deal. We were barely sleeping, barely going home, um, working absurd hours under huge amounts of stress where the stakes were massive, massive financial stakes. And we finally push to close this deal just sort of like hours before the deadline. And I, during that whole period of time, I knew that there was something wrong with me. There was a pain that started brewing in the center of my body. And it was almost like this glowing ember. And with every breath and every minute and every hour, it glowed hotter and more painful until mm. after a number of days, I could barely breathe. I could barely stand up. Uh, I knew something was really wrong, but I was also kind of like the young guy on the deal. And I didn't want to be the one who tapped out first. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone was just heads down living in their own altered reality. So I pushed through and then I went home. Um, I think I passed out for a few hours, woke up and went straight to my doctor who did a quick exam on me and turned white and then said, there's a large mass inside of you that wasn't there a few months ago when we did your physical, he took me to an infectious disease guy down the hall within a matter of hours. I was checked into the hospital and had emergency surgery. And all we can figure was that um, I had an infection brewing in my body for a long time before that. And my immune system had just, there was nothing left inside of me. I had pushed myself so far to the edge that my immune system basically stopped functioning. And that infection 
mushroomed into this big thing inside of me and ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in. You know, when your body rejects your career at some point, you have to listen. Um, and for me, you know, thankfully the, the surgery was a success. Uh, I took a little bit of time to recover and then went back to the office. But I knew from that moment forward, I was on my way out. Um, and I just started making lists of things that I thought would be cool to do with my life if I could figure out how to support myself because I didn't really want to start living hand to mouth, having had a taste of the life that I was living as a big firm lawyer. Um, and I, I needed to try and figure out how to navigate that. So it was, um, you know, my entry into the field was more based on curiosity and skill. Um, and my exit from it was based on my body letting me know that I was doing something that was not right for it. And what's interesting is in hindsight, and I can't remember whether we've talked about this, Brian, but I've been thinking a lot lately about if I knew now, or if I knew then what I know now about how to reimagine and reinvent what you're doing um, to bring so much more of what you want into it, I think there may be a safe bet that I actually would have stayed in the practice of law but understood that I could completely reimagine how I was practicing, the type of law I was practicing, who I was working with, the type of hours I was keeping, the intentions and the focus areas, because you know it's a vast, vast field. And there are so many opportunities to carve your own unique niche into it. Um, but I just, my head wasn't there at that point in my life. The only way I saw was just to exit. Um, and, but I, I've been reflecting on that recently and I don't know whether I would have stayed in for a lot longer, but safe bet, I would have at least tried one more iteration and probably gotten a lot more out of it than I realized I could have back at that time. Yeah. The, I mean, the hindsight is interesting, but I mean, I think the, the pain that you went through is, is such a signal. My, my mom always told me growing up, she said, when the pain of staying is greater than the pain of leaving that's when you know it's time to go. Um, mm. and, your, and your body kind of uh, seems like forced that, you know, absence to eventually go. Uh, but, you know, I also can appreciate the perspective of, you know, maybe I could have reimagined it. Uh, but I, I think it's it's moments like that, right, that are so profound and shape and make you into who you are today. And, you know, clearly I, we're, we're pivotal points to set you on a, a path forward. Uh, that was, I think, very much for the better. And so, so Jonathan, after you maybe turned in your notice to say I'm leaving, I mean, hmm. is that is that what led you more into the healing and heart space with yoga? I mean, what what kind what events maybe happened uh, after that? Yeah. So on that list that I was making on my legal pads, um, and if you had walked by my office on any given day and you'd see me madly scribbling on you know, like a legal pad with yellow paper and smiling. It wasn't because I was doing my work for my job. It was because I was brainstorming options for my next move. And what kept coming up over and over were variations of um, entrepreneurship. Because again, like that bug has been in me. I, I make things like I wake up in the morning and I build things. And a lot of times that means businesses and brands and, uh, and communities often around them. And so what kept coming up was variations of fitness, well-being, human potential, and entrepreneurship. And I got really curious about the fitness industry. Um, 
I had been exposed to it for most of my life. I was a competitive gymnast for the first 18 years of my life also. Um, so I was at a deep fascination with somatics, the mind-body connection. And, um, and I started looking at the fitness industry and really believing that it was horribly broken. And I started doing research on it and seeing the numbers were atrocious. And honestly, to this day, they're really, really bad. Um, you know, it's an industry where there's a 40% annual attrition rate for your clients, which means you're effectively replacing all of your client base every two and a half years. Um, and rather than making, you know, trying to change that by just providing extraordinary outcomes and touch and community, a lot of marketing money has been thrown at it. And to, and to this day, it really hasn't changed the numbers all that much. There's some big standouts that are doing a phenomenal job, but the, the core of the model hasn't really evolved. And I, I kept looking around and saying, there's gotta be a better mousetrap. So I literally, I knew I was gonna head into this space. I also knew I didn't wanna head into it on the management level. I wanted to understand what was happening at the fundamental point of service, like what was broken, what was right, what was, I wanted to learn that touch point. So I talked my way into a job at this fancy little personal training studio on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I went from making a really nice six-figure living to making $12 an hour in the blink of an eye. Um, I knew this was coming. So for the better part of a year before I actually tapped out of the firm, I was just banking as much money as humanly possible because I knew I was going to take a hit and I knew I needed to cover myself. I needed a buffer. So kind of when I had when I felt like I had enough information about how I wanted to step into this new space and when I felt like I had saved enough money and when I felt like my mind and body just really couldn't take being there any longer, that was when I made the decision to leave. And, and then my first step was spending six months just learning the industry um, as a personal trainer, you know, wearing tights, running shoes and, and beat up old t-shirts. Um, funny enough, very often working with the same type of client that I had worked with as a lawyer raising hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, for private equity. Um, I was just working with them in a different context. <laughs> and, and I also learned that the fact that I could speak Wall Street made me a real outlier in that world. Um, and it was a very big competitive advantage. Um, and I pretty quickly deconstructed the model and realized, you know, I wanted to do something very different. And I thought I had a different take on it. And, and that also taught me that there's a distinct advantage very often at coming into an industry, not by working your way up, but as a complete outsider, because you don't buy into all of the norms. Um, you just look at it with fresh eyes and it's really powerful to be able to do that. And it's scary on the one hand, but also powerful because you see things that people who come up from the inside don't see because they're just based on the assumptions of what they've been taught. So I ended up opening my own facility right after that. Um, and we grew it for about two and a half years. And then I, I was kind of getting uh, ready to move on. So I ended up selling my interest in that company to um, some private investors. And that was um, where, you know, we sort of like enter that conversation of me taking a, a, a minute to breathe and then actually starting to write because I started to develop a passion for language. And then simultaneously, signed in that six-year lease for a floor in a building to step into the world of yoga. Super fascinating story. And uh, it's, you know, what's interesting is like the, what kept coming up on your notepad, you know, the reoccurring theme. And it, it's funny, it's like you, you started to lean into the mind-body space to, to learn everything, but like subliminally in a way you were, you were kind of connected to 
that mind-body connection with with that you're really present to the signals of of what was coming up for you and then really diving deep into it so it's, yeah. it's just neat how you kind of followed it to you know follow a much deeper curiosity it's funny because every once in a while um I'll bump into somebody um, who was a yoga student of mine back in like the early 2000s in Hell's Kitchen. And it just happened in Boulder, Colorado a few weeks ago, which is really funny. Um, Oh no, actually it wasn't Boulder. I was literally on a retreat in Napa, California. And um, one of the people who was working there just kept looking at me. Um, She was a waitress. And eventually she's like, I know you. She's like, are you Jonathan? I was like, yeah. And she's like, I used to take your class, you know, like 17 years ago in the yoga studio in Hell's Kitchen. I was like, oh my God. And then inevitably the last, like, do you miss it? Do you miss teaching yoga? And my my sort of like instant response is I never stopped. Um, I don't teach the physical practices anymore, but the ethical side of it, which is where my deep fascination always lay, like the the rules and constraints and the guides and the thoughts and the questions about how we live good lives. Like that's really at the heart of what yoga is. And so to this day, if I'm teaching conscious entrepreneurship, if I'm teaching how to reimagine work to align it with meaning and joy and purpose, you know, if I'm teaching self-awareness to me, it's all, you know, you can call it what you want. You can call it being an author, being a speaker, running companies. It's yoga. Interesting. It's like yoga was the Bible for life, like the playbook on how do I, how do I live a good life? Yeah. In a lot of ways. Interesting. It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about doing yoga teacher training uh, next year. So anyways, um, I, I love what it stands for as a practice and uh, can see how it really maybe shifted and shaped uh, your philosophy and just thinking around what you do uh, and why you do it and how, and how it kind of all comes together. Uh, and, and Jonathan, I mean, I think the, the path, right. It just from the event that you started out with in this show, uh, to with your to opening up the yoga studio, September 11th, it's, it's just really interesting. The journey from kind of childhood and what you saw law school and then kind of the, the entry way to yoga, it sounds like yoga from a teaching perspective and a teaching on life perspective was, was quite profound. And I know you ended up starting the, the good life. Was that born out of yoga? I mean, it seems like everything in your life has been like a thread line of continuation. Um, yeah. Very positive way. So I'm just like curious, like how that was born. So uh, probably yes and no. Um, Yes. And that is, it's definitely an evolution of my just, deep fascination with, um, how we live good lives, which, you know, is a lot of what I started to really look at and study on the yogic side. You know, I was reading a lot of the classic, uh, texts like the Bhagavad Gita, you know, like I remember a translation in a line in, in the Gita was, um, far better to live your own path imperfectly than to live another's path perfectly. Mm. You know, so so you have all of these esoteric teachings from thousands of years ago that are spot on for the way that we live our lives today and all the questions that we have, you know, and this stuff's been around forever. So I'm always trying to get closer to the source is what I found. There's something about my wiring. So, so for me, you know, when I finally, um, I sold, uh, the yoga center at the end of 2008, because 
it was stable. It was kind of rolling on. And the, the, the maker's impulse in me was really rearing its head. I had a deep fascination with language and with words then, and had started to want to write and, and play with big ideas and, and take them to the world in a different way. And actually signed my first book deal with Random House. And so I, I sold the business because a business like a yoga center really needs a shepherd who's present. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. And because it's a community at the end of the day. Right. So, you, you know, you need, you need people who are invested in the community. And I had pretty much checked out and, um, and, and I was very fortunate and it was a very successful and flourishing company on the business side too. So I was able to exit and, and just start writing and thinking and speaking and good life project happened a couple of years later. Um, really as my own engine for discovery, where I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could find people who I consider to be embodied teachers? And by that, I mean, people who aren't just talking about it or writing about it, but you look at the way they're living their lives and something about that tells you they figured something out and then sit down with them and kind of like really just ask them everything that I wanted to know. And then wouldn't it be cool if I could find those people and they would actually say yes to me. And then we could memorialize that and turn it around and share it with the world so that everybody could be a fly on the wall in that conversation and learn just like I was learning. And that became good life project. You know, that became the educational side and the media side. And we started producing video and then eventually that morphed into audio, which, which morphed into the good life project podcast. And we were very early in the space and very fortunate and, and have, you know, like kind of grown into one of the larger shows um, as we've endured through a lot of change in the industry and also built community, you know, and we're, we're doing educational programs and retreats. And, you know, for five years, we ran an adult summer camp where 450 people or so from around the world would come and just hang and play and learn in a kid's sleepaway camp for four days at the end of every summer. So, you know, this is like, yeah, I mean, you could literally look at that and say, well, okay, so you've recreated the Sangha or the community, you've recreated like the teachings, you've recreated all sorts of classes, you've recreated, you know, a sense of values, which, and we actually had like a stated creed. This is what we believe. If you raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me too, then come join us. Um, so it, it is all sort of the organic extension. Everything is just, it's it's new mechanisms and modes Um and and vessels for my exploration of what it means to live a good life and also in particular more recently the domain of work and like how do we work in a way that gives us a feeling of coming alive and then um how do i build things along the way so that it both supports my ability to keep doing more of it and then provides value to other people so i can call it my living um and make Mm. a, a broader difference at scale Absolutely. And you said something in there that I kind of latched onto and you said, how do you find embodied teachers and like sit with them to, to help shape this kind of content for others to really be impacted by. And it's like you, you started out from such a, just say internal place of alignment, right. When you were thinking about this, that it has, it wasn't so transactional. It wasn't, I got to do this to make money. It was I you were able to build it slowly over time. And it grew to obviously a massive, large audience with a lot of change in the industry and technology and online from in-person as you've talked about a lot. So, uh, yeah. And, and by, by the way, just, just to add to that also, um, cause I don't want it to sound sort of like too fluffy or, or like polyanistic. Um, 
you know, I'm also a guy who has a family to take care of. So money matters to me and it always has, Right. <laughs> you know, so in the back of my mind, it wasn't like, let, I, I am, I wish I could raise my hand and say like, I am here just to love the planet and be hundred percent of service. You know, I, like I am the walking, talking, giving tree. That's not me. You know, right. the truth is, yeah, I love to learn. I love to make stuff. I love to make things that move people. And I also want to make you know sure that I'm okay. And I want to make sure my family's okay. And I want to be, I want to live in a certain way. So I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that, you know, I didn't just say I'm all in on all of these really cool value-driven things. I am all in on those. And at the same time, I'm also really realistic. You know, um, until very recently, I was raising a family and and being a husband and trying to take care of a lot of people in New York City, which is a really hard place to sustain yourself. So I had to focus on that too. It's just, that was never my sole metric for success. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's so important. And I didn't mean to overshadow that at all, but I, it's, I'm glad you brought that up and put that to the forefront because you're, you can make things that aren't just soul driven, but they're made in a way that can also create uh, sustainable living for you and your family. Um, Jonathan, I want to spend the last, you know, 10 or so minutes talking about what you've done uh, to make something that is moving people. And uh, that's your latest book. And I would love for you to maybe talk about the book and what made you write it and how kind of it came to light and, and really what you hope the impact it is on the people within your community and audience. Yeah. So the name of the book is Sparked, and that comes out of um, the sort of like the body of work that I've been working on for, you know, honestly, actually it, it, it goes all the way back to 9-11, but it's been a much more intentional focus for the last five years or so. And I got really curious. I said, you know, this thing called work, um, we do it for most of our lives. We do it for most of our waking hours. And most of us actually are not going to retire. So how can we figure out how to actually make it feel the way it wants to feel? People are talking about these days, burnout and the great resignation and everyone's quitting. And it's all like, everyone's like, well, what's changing that, you know, there's something that's happening now. And I just want to sort of like shake, shake the lens a little bit and say, no, 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 no. Like what we're saying now, this is just the fact that like somebody's peeled the bandaid off a level of existential discontent and burnout that has been festering for generations. This is not a new thing. We've just hit the tipping point where people can't take it anymore. And now that the world of work has been involuntarily turned upside down and the, the, this big questioning has been normalized, everyone's all in on sort of like the process of reimagining. But I've been looking at these questions for a lot of years and I started to wonder a while back, I said, you know, I wonder, I wonder if there is an identifiable set of impulses for effort or for work that exists in all of us that would give us this feeling of coming alive. And then I, 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 you know, I said, okay, so that's really two questions. Like one, do these impulses even exist? I had no idea. And two, what am I actually talking about when I say coming alive? I mean, it's mm. a really nebulous term, right? Um, so I had to deconstruct that latter part first for me. I was like, well, what do I feel when I feel like I'm literally doing the thing I was put here to do? And it's, it's, it's the, the overlap of between five states is what I sort of have landed at. It's meaning what I'm doing actually matters. 
it's access to flow. I become absorbed in the activity. I literally can no longer differentiate myself from the activity. And I, I lose a sense of self, self-awareness or, uh, and a sense of time. Um, it's excitement and energy, you know, corporate speak calls that engagement. It's expressed potential. Like I'm not being stifled and there's no, there's no reservoir of potential that I can't figure out how to access. I'm literally mining it and bringing it to the fore and performing at, as my best self and as my fullest self. And the fifth element is purpose. And that functions on two levels, both a sense of purpose, like I know what I'm working towards and it actually matters to me. And then more broadly, um, a sense of, of purpose in life. Like you're, you're doing the thing that you feel put here to do. So when I talk, when I use the phrase coming alive, it's, it's the overlap, the Venn diagram between those five different states. And then when I said, you know, do we have these, these measurable or mappable impulses that would give us this feeling that exist across all people? I literally just started deconstructing every job, every list of jobs, titles, roles that I could find. And these fundamental units of effort kept popping up over and over and over, but in different mixes in different blends. And I kept distilling it down, distilling it down, saying, what's driving that? And I got to a place where I identified these 10 fundamental impulses for effort that give you the feeling of coming alive. And then I realized that each one of these tends to have its own kind of quirky set of behaviors and tendencies um, and preferences that wrap around it to form archetypes. And I started calling them sparkotypes because it's kind of a fun way to say the archetypes for work that sparks you. And and I started sharing them around and getting tremendous feedback and validation, but I wanted much higher level um, data. So we spent 2018 building an assessment, the Sparkotype assessment, released it out of beta to the world. As I talk to you now, probably we're probably closing in on about 600,000 people have completed this assessment, generating around 30 million data points. And then some follow-up uh, research also that shows us, you know, tremendous levels of validation, accuracy rates that people are reporting somewhere between 92, 93%, which is higher than I ever imagined we would see and really strong correlations with doing the work of your sparkotype and all five of those things that I talked about, you know, literally a lockstep. The more you do this, the more people will tell us that they feel like what they're doing actually matters, that they lose themselves in flow, all those different things. And then you know, when you have that volume of quantitative data coming at you, then you start to get just a mountain of stories and use cases and applications flowing from that. And all of a sudden we're building this giant reservoir of like lived experiences and how these show up in the world. And this kind of all started building up in my head. And I realized that at some point, oh, this this actually has to be a book because there needs to be one central place where we can bring all of these insights together mm. and just share them with the world in a super accessible way. That is not my brain because, you know, it's almost like there had to be a release valve for my head. So that ends up um, pouring into this book, you know, called Sparked, which is the book, which is effectively, you know, it's like the encyclopedia of these 10 sparkotypes. Mm. What a, <laughs> it's just you describing about deconstructing, uh everything it was just i mean it's like what what led you you know what led you there to then go do that and then just how you arrived at the place you did and then how that turned into six hundred thousand data points and then okay how do i go share these stories qualitatively i almost feel like it's a mix of 
um, not to uh, portray the wrong image here, but it's like your mom, the artisan, your dad, the researcher, and then like this, the, you know, I love the Brene Brown qualitative quantitative model, you know, like deriving stories from dadding. It's like you put it all together and now you have so much information to help people derive meaning and, and figure out what makes them come alive in a more quantitative with story and just a, a more more of a framework and approach to think about their life in a more focused and direct way. And I, and I think that's just really unique that there isn't much out there like that, that you can do and access to kind of give your life direction. Yeah. I mean, if, if this existed in a way that I felt comfortable with before, I never would have said yes to this project because this has been a lot of work (laughs) and I'm a maker. Like I love to make stuff, you know, so we do the research, but then I turn around and we build tools and we build assessments and we build experiences and I build a book and then we build community. You know, like for me, it always, the net result of this is always things that go out into the world and create a ripple effect that goes way beyond me. You know, I make things that move people. That's literally what it says on the top panel of my personal website. Um, but um, but yeah, and there are a lot of great tools and assessments and personality typing uh, systems out there that tell you a lot of things, relational styles, generalized personality traits, character traits, you know, like talents, skills. But I didn't see this thing that basically answered a solitary question, which is, how do I find and do work that makes me come alive? Like, what is the fundamental impulse for me in in a way that I I exert effort and it gives me that feeling of coming alive or being sparked? And I just didn't see that. And for me, it, it was based on like, we need something that's robust and accurate, but also something that's useful, that's legitimately useful, that will guide your decisions on a day-to-day basis that will help you discern what to say yes and no to and make your work a better place to be and in turn your life a better place to play in. You know, And there are a lot of fascinating things that are out there in the world that are, are really interesting, but also don't translate super easily into action. And I don't really have an interest in doing that. Um, I want to create things that are useful in the world and that actually are simple and accessible and that people can actually um, build action around. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think you said it best. It's practical and, and translates to action. Uh, and Jonathan, I want to be respectful of time. I, I know there's an assessment on your website where people can go do this, but why don't you tell people about um, where to take the assessment, where to find the book, uh, and where to kind of follow along the uh, the story of, of you. Yeah, so anyone can take the Sparkotype assessment. It's completely free. It's available online. It's at sparkotype.com, and that's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. The book, which takes you, I don't know, 10, 100 times deeper, um, is called Spark. It's available literally at every bookseller around the planet um, these days. And for me, you can find me at Jonathan Fields pretty much anywhere in the online world. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thanks for showing up, sharing such personal stories uh, and con- you know such connective tissue between meaning, work, aliveness, and, and just who you are. So really enjoyed it. And I know our audience will too. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed the conversation too. 
if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.